find it around page 1183 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, as we come to listen to God's word, how about we pray and ask him to help us understand it and and transform our lives in doing so. Uh, Father God, thank you for the opportunity to share your word, uh, to listen to it and to receive it. We pray you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and lives that would respond and be transformed by what your spirit says to us this morning. And we pray that it might be all for your glory and honour. In Jesus' name, which is above every other name. Amen. Well, I guess most of my work day these days is spent doing something with computers, Uh, whether it be programming computers or using them to compile reports or find information, teaching students about computers, lots of computers in there. And so maybe I see the world from a computer mindset a lot of the time. It reminds me, the first time I went down to Tim Boone and met Sarah's family uh, down there and her, her church family, um, I met a guy at church, his, his name was Alistair, and we struck up a bit of a conversation and I started finding about what he did. Now, Tim Boone, massive farming area, dairy cows and things, and he told me he was involved in AI. 
And I thought, ah, computer mindset, AI stands for artificial intelligence. So I started talking all about, oh, all the mechanisation that can happen on farms, robots being used on farms, and it wasn't until quite a long way into the conversation and afterwards I realised A certainly stood for artificial, but I certainly stood for something else. Um, our resident vet, Noel, will be able to explain a bit more to you about that, I'm sure, if you need it. Um, when I told them that in the, the congregation when I preached down there a while ago, being a farming congregation, they knew exactly what AI stood for. <laughs> bit confused about what I thought it stood for, I think. So, if you spent much time with computers, you'd probably at some stage seen a little sticker on the outside of the computer, though. It says something like Intel inside. These things have been around for years, and what does that mean? Well, Intel inside tells us something of the branding of the computer, the, the microprocessor that's inside the computer that controls everything, that drives everything, that performs all the computation, all the logical instructions. It's where the power of the computer actually lies, where all the decisions are made. And if you've got that sticker on the computer, provided it's a genuine sticker, of course, it's pretty easy to work out what's controlling that computer, what's driving that computer. It makes it easy to work out. As we approach Easter, we'll be looking in a little bit of detail at Romans 8, which we wouldn't normally think of, oh, this isn't the classic Palm Sunday sermon or passage or anything like that, but it essentially is telling us what Easter achieves for us as Christians, how our life is changed. And we'll see three characteristics. Firstly, we'll see that Christians are driven and transformed by the Spirit. Secondly, we'll see that Christians are forgiven by God and how that changes us. And finally, we'll see how we're adopted into his family. We're adopted by God. So let's start off with looking how Christians are driven and transformed. Starting at Romans 8, uh, verse 5, we'll read a little bit. Those who live according to the sinful nature, this is people who aren't Christians, have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death and the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if one does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. It's telling something of what's controlling us, what's driving us, how we're being transformed. It continues on talking in, in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we've got an obligation, but not uh, to the sinful nature, that which used to control us, to live according to it. But for you to live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if, the spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's talking about two options here of what we're setting our minds on. Two options here of what's driving or controlling our lives. Two options are the flesh or the sinful nature, as some translations say it, or the spirit. The flesh or the spirit. And 
It's talking about these two options and these two options don't get along with each other fairly well. It's talking about them being at war with one another. The spirit wants one thing. It wants what God wants. The flesh wants one thing or the sinful nature wants one thing. It wants itself. It wants to put itself first. It doesn't want to put God first. One's at war with God and the other's at peace with God. So what is this flesh or sinful nature as uh, it's translated in some versions? We read from the passage in Ezekiel that we had earlier on that this flesh seemed to be, when we use the word flesh, it seemed to be a good thing. It talks about we could have a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. And here in Romans we see in some translations it says sinful nature, some translations it says flesh. The flesh seems to be a bad thing. What's happened here in the few thousand years between what these are written? Well, we see in the Old Testament we can either have a heart of stone, a hard heart towards God, or we can have a heart of flesh, a soft heart that receives God's instruction and changes, submits to God. And the words used in the Hebrew and Greek are quite different words and they, they have different meanings. The Old Testament word used in Ezekiel, the word basor, it talks about the specific meatiness, the fleshiness of a human or animal. In the New Testament, the word used, sarx, has multiple meanings and one of them is that meaning of the flesh, the, the actual body, but others, and most commonly used in Romans, the meaning is talking about our sinful nature, that, that nature that affects all mankind and that nature that wants to rebel against God and not obey his laws. And that's what we see in this case. So when we think about the flesh, we're talking about that sinful nature. We see in the beginning Adam and Eve disobeying God's first law and we see us today and every generation from Adam and Eve onwards having this natural bent, a willful desire to continue to disobey God, to refuse him being inside us, to refuse him controlling our lives, to refuse his rule over our lives, essentially us wanting to do our own thing. And then we see, in contrast to this, the spirit. Sinful nature, the flesh, now we have the spirit. And when people put their their faith in Christ, when people put their trust in Christ, they turn away from disobedience and start trusting in Jesus. The passage is telling us essentially, here's what becomes inside. Here's the thing that's controlling and transforming us. Now, sometimes we might ignore him at times, and listen to this flesh, listen to this sinful nature. But nonetheless, he's the one that's transforming us. He's the one that's inside. Well, how do we tell what drives or controls a person, a a particular person? Can we look at that person and say, well, clearly I I, I can just see what's controlling them. Um, Is it like with our example of the intel inside before, we just see the sticker on the person and say, oh, well, They've got the Jesus sticker, they've got the sinful nature sticker. That's obvious, isn't it? Well, it's not really the case. Over time I've come to to understand that people aren't computers. took a while. but And we know this not just because that Intel Inside sticker is missing. We know know people are the, the crown, the special thing of God's creation. So how can we tell what's inside? How can we tell what's controlling and driving and transforming a person? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? Well, let's have a look at verse 9 for a moment. And it says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. 
If the Spirit of God dwells in you, lives in you, and if, everyone, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Let's think of a, a distinction. You may have heard this distinction. I've heard people talking about uh, we can have spirit-filled Christians and non-spirit-filled Christians. I think the idea behind this passage is it's saying if you don't have the Spirit living in you, you're not a Christian. If you don't have God's Spirit living in you, transforming you, you're not a Christian. You might follow Christian philosophies and and like the ideas of the Bible, but unless God's living in you, unless Jesus is with you, it says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now think about it for a moment. It would be like saying, Jesus, thank you for what you did at Easter. Thank you for dying and taking the punishment for all my sin. But now I've sorted out myself. I don't really need any extra help from you. You've taken the punishment and I'll just live my own way and follow your laws and walk it all out and I'm all good. Thanks very much. I think it becomes the height of arrogance to say that we know best that we can live our lives on our own and and try and obey God's laws. Is that the the attitude of a repentant person seeking God's grace? Thanks, Jesus. You've done that for me. Now let me live my life. I'll sort it out myself. If a person's a real Christian, they must have the Holy Spirit. They must be filled with the Spirit. But they don't have the sticker on their head. There isn't the sticker. It hasn't been produced. So, how do we work it out? How do we work out if they are a real Christian? It might seem a bit abstract because we can't see that sticker, but I think there's a few ways that can help us spot it, can help us work out, both for others and ourselves. Firstly, does the person proclaim that they put their trust in Jesus? Are they telling people that they're trusting Jesus for their salvation? They're not trying to work their way to heaven as if they had some ledger of works they need to fill out and try and earn God's love or respect or anything like that. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, those who come to me, I will not turn away. If he doesn't turn away, they're his. They're living inside them. He's living inside them. And from the passage in Ezekiel, we see God promising to put his spirit in people and in doing so, transform them towards obedience not living their life apart from him, their life of rejecting him and their life which gave God a really bad name because people were saying, look at God's people, how terrible they are. We should see these changes. We should see God's spirit being reflected in our lives. It's the same sort of thing of what Paul's talking about in Galatians. You've probably heard of the passage talking about the fruit of the spirit. In that passage, just around it, it also talks about the fruit of the flesh as well and makes a distinction between the two of them. If you're living uh, a life with the Spirit inside you, being controlled by the Spirit, you'll have this sort of fruit. If you're living the life of the flesh, with the flesh, the sinful nature controlling you, you'll have this sort of fruit. He says in in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians, the uh, the fruit of the flesh is obvious. It's things like rage and drunkenness and hatred and sexual immorality. And then he says, in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. It doesn't mean that your life will consist only of the latter and never of the former. There's a bit of a war going on inside us and that war will be complete when, when we're taken up into heaven. 
And Paul talks about this war in, in chapter 7 of Romans. But even though there's still this war, we see ourselves being transformed. The Bible talks about day by day being transformed in what we think, in how we act and being transformed by the Spirit. So, how do we bear this fruit? Well, I'd like to suggest it's not simply just trying really, 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 really hard. It's not saying, today, I'm going to be a patient person until you get on the road and someone pulls out in front of you and it doesn't go so well. Or today, I'm going to be a joyful, a loving person. Because essentially saying, I am going to do this today, I am going to do it, Is that the fruit of the Spirit? Sounds a bit like the fruit of the flesh. I am going to do this. And it might end up, if we we do a decent job, we might think, I am going to do this. I have done this. What a great person I am. And what's that? That's pride. And that's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the flesh. So how do we change it? Well, we need to not just try harder. We need to give ourselves over to God more. We need him, his spirit, to take control of us. We need him to transform us. It's not simply trying hard on our own strength, trying to produce this fruit as if it was all by our own means, all by our own strength. It's him that needs to transform us. And as he transforms us, his fruit will be born. And as it's his fruit, it will bring glory to him, not glory to us. So, as we think about ourselves... We have decisions. Are we, are we controlled by the spirit or are we controlled by the flesh? Maybe you think over the past week, think about all the people that you came into contact with and if they saw a sticker on your forehead that said Jesus inside or, or flesh or sinful nature inside, which one do you think they'd pick out based on how they've seen you living, how they've seen you acting? I think it's something that we can pray that the spirit would take over our lives and transform us, that the Spirit would bear this good fruit in our lives and in doing so bring glory to God. In Ezekiel, people were saying, these Israelites, these, these people who are meant to be children of God, they're dishonouring God's name by the way they're living. Let's pray it's not the same in our lives as well, and that he'd transform us. But how about we backtrack a little bit and think about why we'd want Jesus inside, why we'd want the Spirit inside controlling us. Well, one thing that we learn from the Bible, or one thing that we specifically learn from this passage, is that Christians are forgiven by God. Christians are forgiven by God. Now, I remember one night driving home from church, uh, driving along, everything's dark, and then my rearview mirror filled with blue and red flashing lights. There's only a few cars that have blue and red flashing lights on them, and immediately what flashed through my head is, what have I done wrong? Did I not indicate? Was I speeding? No, I wasn't speeding. My headlights are too high. What could have I possibly done wrong? My headlights are on. And what would the penalty be for what I've done wrong? I wonder if you've had the privilege of uh, being pulled over and the police want to have a chat with you. There's kind of this moment of, oh no, oh no, what's happened? A bit of a panic. What would the penalty be? What have I done? Did they see me doing something wrong? Did I pop over the speed limit back there? But for a sec, what if it wasn't the police pulling you over? What if Jesus was the one pulling you over and wants to have a bit of a chat? A bit of a chat about how your life's going. A bit of a chat about, uh, a bit of a chat about your eternity. 
he knows a lot more about you than what the police ever would. The police just have a speed gun here and there. Jesus knows the the enormity of your life, everything there, as well as what you're thinking. Well, I think if Jesus pulled us over and had that chat with us, we could receive one of two responses from him. The first response we could receive from him was, you've done the wrong thing, you're guilty, and you need to pay the penalty for it. I think the second response that we can receive is, you've done the wrong thing, you're guilty, and I've paid the penalty for it. You see, on our side, we have the same problem. You've done the wrong thing, you're guilty. He responds in two different ways though. And we see it starting at verse 1 in our passage. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that those who are in Christ Jesus haven't done anything wrong. The Bible tells us if we think we haven't sinned, we're kidding ourselves, we're lying. We all have. We're all guilty. What it's telling us is we don't receive the punishment for it. We don't receive the condemnation for it. Those who are walking with Jesus, those who are putting their trust in Jesus, those who Jesus lives inside, those who have repented, don't receive God's condemnation. They don't receive God's punishment. And doing so, they receive his reward. They live with him and they have life with him and they have an eternity with him. I think you and I all know that we've done the wrong thing and if we, if we think not, we'd be kidding ourselves. I, I know some people have heard, they kind of think, well, in the cosmic scales of life, I think I've done more good than bad. I think I've got, done more good than bad or certainly more good and bad compared to that person, so God should let me into heaven. But take the simple test. Think about your life and have you ever hated someone? And have you pleased yourself because you managed to bottle all that hate up inside and not let it show and you think, I'm a self-controlled person because my hatred I kept inside and didn't let everyone else see it. What does that make you? A hateful, proud person. That's not very nice. Or have you ever lied or misrepresented the truth, even in small ways? What does that make you? It makes you a liar. Or have you ever looked with longing eyes at something or someone else? What does that make you? A, a covetous idol worshipper. Why should God let a, a hateful, proud, lying idol worshipper into his perfect heaven? The answer is he won't and he doesn't. Unless the condemnation that we'd receive is put on Jesus. Unless he becomes our substitute. Unless, as in verse 1 it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the enormity of God's salvation. We haven't uh, earned our ticket to heaven by our works. We haven't earned it at all. It's everything of what God's done and nothing of what we've done. There's no condemnation and hence uh, the reward that comes from that is because in God's eyes, Jesus has taken the punishment. Jesus has taken the penalty. Jesus has taken the condemnation for the wrong things that you have done. This is true forgiveness. So, if we were to talk about talk with Jesus, if he were to be the one that pulls us over and talks about our eternal prospects and how we're living, what we can see is we wouldn't receive his condemnation because 
he's the one that's lived a life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. Some of us try, we fail over and over again. And he, he died the death, he took the penalty that we deserve. Have a look again at verse 7 and 8 of the chapter. We see the sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those controlled by the sinful, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Please don't kid yourself that you can work your way into God's good books. Please don't kid yourself that you can work your way into heaven for those around you. Living by the flesh, living our own way, it's impossible to please God. It's only when we submit to God, it's only when we make Jesus the one that we trust in for salvation, that we have real life, that we have real hope, that we have real forgiveness. Paul says this in Galatians 2 as well. And he essentially um, tries to break down that philosophy, the philosophy of virtually every other world religion that we can work our way into God's good books. It's in Galatians 2.21 and let me read it. Galatians 2.21 uh, we'll start at the verse before. He talks about, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then here we go. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if, by righteousness, if, right, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If we could make ourselves right with God by simply being good, by simply trying to do good things, Jesus' death was a waste of time. Christ died for nothing. What sort of God would send his son to die when there's another way that it could be done? We could just do good works. The only way that we can approach God, the only way that we can approach eternity with God is through what Jesus has done, his transformation. Now, I was talking about before when the police pulled me over and I was so worried, but in that case I wasn't actually guilty of anything, except maybe being a peepater at the time. But being not guilty was a huge relief. But how much bigger relief knowing that we're guilty but having Jesus take that punishment for us? Punishment that we couldn't take, we couldn't bear, but Jesus takes it. I wonder if there's anything that you're feeling guilty about. Anything that plays on your mind, anything that eats you up and anything that makes you feel like a failure before God. I think one thing that God wants us to do is bring those things to him, to repent, to apologise and and to change, but also to know that he has forgiven us. He's cast our sins, our, our disobedience as far as the east is from the rest, it says in the Psalms. But because we have Jesus taking the punishment for our sins, We don't bear it ourselves. And then finally, we see the third thing. We've seen that Christians are controlled and transformed by God. We've seen that Christians are forgiven by God. And now we see that Christians are adopted by God. You may have heard the phrase, you can can choose your friends but you can't choose your family. You heard that phrase? It's normally said in a pretty derogatory way. But when we talk... When we talk about choosing friends, there's one, oh, sorry, you can't choose your family. There's one place that that doesn't really hold true. The place it doesn't hold true is in adoption. 
In adoption, you specifically do choose someone to be part of your family. You specifically do choose someone to be your son or daughter. And if they're old enough, they might get some choice in it as well. They might choose to become your son or daughter. In this last section of uh, Romans 8 uh, that we've had read to us, we see God adopting us into his family. God adopting us into his family. And we didn't come in just because some sort of birthright or, or the, the place we were born or, or, or by default. He, he actually adopts us and brings us into his family. So let's read that part, starting at verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14. But those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And we cry, Abba, Father. It's the, the personal term for Father in the New Testament. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed share with his suffering in order that we might share with his glory as well. Now, many of you would know that recently I became a father. Uh, What, six and a half months ago now, uh, precious Luke came into our world and, and changed our world in many ways. And one thing that actually changed in my life is thinking about this whole concept of God being our father. Now, having not been a father before, it seemed just a little bit abstract. But now, seeing that God talks about this relationship, that he is our father, that's pretty amazing. It's more than I could comprehend and I think more than we can fully comprehend to understand this, this fatherly heart, this fatherly relationship that we have with God. So, what does it mean to be a son or a daughter of God? Well, for starters, it means we change families. Rather than being a child of the world or, as Jesus calls the Pharisee, children of the devil, we become God's children. We're changing families and being adopted from a not very good family to an amazing family, God's family. And we can see that we're in desperate need of being adopted. If we headed down the path of being children of the world, children of the devil, we lead to condemnation, we lead to destruction. In God's family, it talks about us being his children and receiving the inheritance, being heirs with Christ. And so why does God choose us? Is it because we're so deserving? Or because we're so cute? Or because we're so good? Or because he has to? None of the above. He chooses us because he wanted to. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, because he wanted to. He didn't need to send Jesus to be our substitute. He didn't need to save any of us. But he has. He saved many of us and he wanted to. That's something of the fatherly heart of God. And we talk about God being our father. And we, we know that from the Bible that God is a perfect father a perfectly loving father, an all-wise father, all-wonderful father, one that never makes mistakes, never doesn't have enough time for you and knows exactly what's best for us. It's something as fathers that seems a, a huge thing to try and live up to. We're certainly not perfect, not always loving, not always caring, but God is. He's the perfect father. And I think for us, We should be loving God 
like we should love our father. As children loving a father and seeing their, their love for their father, talking about a good father, we should be listening to our father. We should be obeying our father. We should be spending time with them. In, in verse 15 it talks about us crying out, Abba, father. It's like, Daddy, Dad, Father, I, wa- I want you. I want to spend time with you. I want what you want for me. Being transformed and adopted into God's family should bring these things out within us. And I know that one thing that's changed in the last six months and particularly even more recently as our little Luke's began smiling more, coming home from work and, and seeing my amazing wife but now seeing our, our precious son and the way his face completely lights up as I walk through the door. When we approach God, he's not turning us away. When we approach God, he, he loves us. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to call him his father and put our trust in him. And so what should we expect at our end? Well, the passage tells us a few things about what it's like to be children of God. One of the things it tells us and one of the things we learn from the Bible but also our own experience in, in being parents but also as living as Christians is we're not always perfectly obedient. Yeah? We're not perfectly obedient even though we, we might want to be. Sometimes our old sinful nature, our willful self takes control. We're not always obedient. But God talks about a good father should discipline their children. It says it in Hebrews 12. Good father disciplines their children. And so we should expect as Christians to receive some discipline from God when we're not not obedient to him. Another thing that we we see, because God's a good father, we see that we expect to receive some persecution in this life as Christians. In verse 17 of Romans 8 it talks about if we're children then we're heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And that has amazing things associated with it, but some slightly unpleasant things as well. It talks about if we share in his suffering in order that we may share also in his glory. Now, was Jesus welcomed into this world and everyone loved him to great acclaim and everyone fell at his feet? No. The thing we remember at Easter time is quite the opposite. That we took the only perfect person that ever lived on this world God's son, Jesus, and put him to death. If we're putting our trust in Jesus, if we're following Jesus, we should expect people not to like us at times as well. Now, in a country like Australia, we probably won't see people hanging on the cross in the streets, at least not in the near future. But we can expect things like ridicule, people excluding us, people thinking, how could they believe such a stupid thing? And even those things can sometimes think, well, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Being part of God's family is definitely worth it. Being transformed by him and also receiving that inheritance with him, eternal life with him. Jesus talks about him preparing a place for us. It's definitely worth it. So, as we think about Christians, we're chosen and adopted as God's children. The question is, have you entered God's family? Have you become one of God's children? And if you have, how are you getting on with the rest of God's family? How are you getting on with your brothers and sisters and how are you building each other up? 
as co-heirs in Christ. If you are a child of God, what's God teaching you at the moment? Have you stopped, stopped long enough to listen to what he's teaching you? Have you stopped long enough to reflect? And are you sharing it with others? There's never a bad time to approach God. There's never a time when he's too busy for you. Never a time when he's just not in the right mood to, to hear from you. He's the perfect father. And so if you haven't approached God for a while, if, if you're thinking your father's a bit distant, what's stopping you? Today, please come to your father. Come to your heavenly father and share what's on your heart and let him share what's in his heart with you. If you're not, if you're not one of God's children, what's stopping you? The perfect father, the perfect father is waiting to sign the adoption papers for you. He's waiting for you to say, I want to sign over my life to you and become part of your family. He just needs you to say yes to him. He needs you to say, I don't want to bear the punishment for all the wrong things. I want Jesus to bear that. That's why Jesus came. I want to leave that old life behind and be part of your family and live for you. I want you to transform me. So as we come towards Easter time, let's think about how uh, God as Christians controls and transforms us. Let's think about how he forgives us and that in itself is an amazing thing that we can be ever thankful and grateful for. But also let's think of this amazing privilege to actually be part of God's family, sons and daughters of God. And what was the price that he paid to enable us to become his children? Think about the cross. Think about him giving his son in our place to bring us into his family. What an amazing thing. How about we pray? Father God, our heavenly Father, our perfect heavenly Father, who gave his son in our place that we could be called, that we could come into your family and be sons and daughters of God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for Easter time. Thank you for drawing us into your family, for transforming and changing us. Thank you for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you continue to transform us. We pray that our wonder and excitement and delight of being sons and daughters of God would never diminish. That we look to you as our Father, delight in you, and bring glory to you. We pray this week as we come to Easter that your spirit, that your life may shine through us and show others what it's like to be a son and daughter of Christ and draw them unto yourself too. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.